0: Hello, I'm Jim McNamara, a Leadership Under Fire Human Performance Advisor and the author of LUF's Senior Man's Performance Journal. During the summer of 2022, several members of the LUF team formed a working group that endeavored to examine NIOSH reports, which detailed structural firefighting operations that resulted in the line-of-duty deaths of firefighters and fire officers. I was one of more than two dozen members of the LUF team who worked together to conduct a thorough review of NIOSH line of duty death reports. The LUF team submitted these findings to NIOSH via the CDC that summer in the form of a paper which succinctly highlights human factors deficiencies in line of duty death analysis and reporting. The paper is now being made public and will be available on the LUF website and disseminated electronically to those in the LUF network. I thought it would be valuable to host a conversation with two members of the team who were instrumental in leading and organizing the effort. Jason Bresler, LUF's founder, and Jerry Smith, a member of the Baltimore City Fire Department and an LUF Plank owner. It is my hope that my conversation with Jerry and Jason will not only provide important insight into the methodology used to generate the team's findings, but additionally, I hope that the conversation might also illuminate the path ahead for LUF and the Greater American Fire Service with regards to improving the processes that the fire service relies upon to make sense of performance at fires, which result in the catastrophic death and injury to firefighters and fire officers in the United States. Jerry and Jason, welcome. Hi, Jim. Hey, Jim. Gents, what was the impetus for this effort? And we'll begin with Jason.
1: In recent years, several members of the LUF team have been working to evaluate methodologies used in a number of different organizations within the fire service to investigate line of duty deaths resulting from fire emergency operations. As a result of this work and, and research, the team has identified a number of trends related to the national data set of narratives, findings, and and recommendations from line of duty death fires. Additionally, perhaps even more significant, is that in 2021, there was a fire in Western Maryland that claimed the life of a career firefighter, Captain Josh Laird. In addition to a NIOSH investigation, there was a regional committee formed Uh, And that committee was tasked with conducting its own investigation into the fire and then formulating its own findings and subsequent recommendations through somewhat of a a localized or or regional lens. Members of that committee had reached out to LUF in hopes that we might come in and offer some insight into how human performance and human factors might have played a role more accurately it afforded us an opportunity; those of us on the, the team, an opportunity to, to shed some some insight onto how members at that fire might have been impacted by stress in an operational uh, context. And given that we were looking at the national trends and, and patterns specific to NIOSH reports, I know that we also offered a few cautionary tales based on some of the deficiencies and discrepancies that that we had seen. We were honored to contribute to that report in modest fashion, I think in many ways that report is, is unique in that there's a chapter devoted and dedicated to human performance, which I think institutionally is, is unique as it relates to these reports. Of course, little do we know at the time when contributing to that important effort that there would be a fire in Baltimore City that would claim live, the lives of three, three firefighters. And similar to the, the effort in Frederick, once again, there was a, a, a committee formed of regional representatives from the from the fire service, members of both the Baltimore City Fire Department and surrounding jurisdictions, you know these individuals were were tasked to formally investigate the fire, identify contributing factors, and then provide a number of recommendations going forward. You know once again, the team was honored to have the opportunity to come in and share some insight specific to how these individuals at this particular fire operating might have been impacted by operational stress. And and these efforts to to date were largely informal. Those of us on the team recognize that these were really significant uh, opportunities to contribute baseline level of knowledge and and understanding in the American fire service, certainly here on the East Coast as it relates to human performance under stress. So early last summer, it was brought to my attention that the CDC or perhaps more specifically NIOSH they were soliciting folks in the American Fire Service to provide recommendations as it relates to, to line of duty analysis and reports in, in somewhat true, true IOF fashion. We assembled a number of quiet professionals, largely practitioners, who, you know, in addition to being professional firefighters and fire officers, have been immersed in efforts to, to gain a better understanding of human performance under stress and human factors in an operational context. And we put together a, a working group in an effort to kind of identify the patterns, that trend line and perhaps some of the deficiencies and discrepancies in the NIOSH methodology, reporting and analyses from a human performance
0: perspective. And how did the team go about examining the NIOSH line of duty death reports? I should perhaps mention that we submitted the paper electronically to
1: the federal government, specifically to the CDC last summer. You know, and a number of folks on the team Invested a considerable amount of time in this uh, this research effort. We largely waited to speak about it. I don't know if I would necessarily say I was optimistic, but I was rather hopeful that somebody within the CDC or, or NIOSH would reach out, reach out to one of us on the team at, at some point and hope to expand upon our paper and have a, a more detailed follow-up conversation. So, out of respect for uh, those in those agencies, we we largely withheld distributing the, the paper, affording an, op- an opportunity to kind of percolate uh, within the agencies. You know, perhaps they, they, they will at some point, but there's been no follow-up and there, there have been no following conversations. We, we thought it appropriate now to, one, distribute the paper, uh, disseminate it, and then, uh, you know, continue to have conversations regarding our, our findings and recommendations. Uh, in terms of the methodology that we used, to some extent, I'd say we tried to create a I'm probably going to use some some academic parlance here, but we tried to create somewhat of an interdisciplinary methodology. So, you know, there's a number of us on the the team that have obviously been through college and have done graduate level uh, research. So we try to be very methodical and and deliberate in our analysis and and certainly quite objective. But in terms of our interdisciplinary analysis, there's elements of of psychology, try to be mindful of some some of the neuroscience, you know, try to use an analytics mindset Several of us on the team are professional war fighters. That certainly probably lent influence to the methodology that we used. And, uh, you know, a number of us are informal or formal students of human factors. The, the first order of business was to identify those NIOSH line of duty fires that have been published over the course of the past 22 years, uh, where members were killed in the line of duty as a result of conducting operations at at structural fires, more specifically where inter- interior fire ground operations resulted in the death of at least one member. Our initial data set, we started at 92. Time was somewhat of a constraint or a limiting factor. So we realistically, somewhat ambitiously, but realistically thought we could thoroughly review 12 reports that have been published over the course of the past 20 years. You know, we limited any reports involving cardiac related events, vehicle related events exterior falls, electrocutions, and explosions in industrial facilities. We did try to, to look at firefighting operations, both in urban, suburban, and rural jurisdictions, as well as structural fire operations that involve both career and volunteer departments. And uh, five of the reports that we reviewed involved structural fire operations where multiple members were were killed. So in summer, in total, our preliminary effort included the thorough review of 13% of the reports published during the past two decades. And so I think it's important to to recognize from somewhat of a a, a statistical or probabilistic standpoint that we recognize that our findings cannot be extrapolated to every report, but yet our our study and our our research effort certainly reveals patterns and and to some extent gaps in the analysis uh, as it relates to to human factors. So that, that's largely uh, from the team leader's perspective, that was, uh, that was the methodology that we, that we employed. Each member of the team then was assigned the same human factors analytical framework to use. And Jerry's probably in the best position to, uh, to speak to that framework. And then once everyone did a deep dive in, into their assigned reports, we then used the findings from their, their human factors analytical a- analysis the framework, they each had all of them being uniform, and we used that then to populate a, a matrix that we had created specific to the human factor. Like I said, Jerry's probably in the best position to speak to, in terms of methodology, the human factors analytical framework that we used that each of the uh, the working group participants relied upon in scrutinizing and scouring these reports.
2: Thanks, Jason. So as Jason alluded to, we had 12 reports. They varied in terms of career, volunteer. We even uh, included wilderness beyond just the normal private dwelling. uh, We even had a high rise. But the categories are broken down in a manner that really broadened the traditional perspective around these reports in terms of the factors that we see very commonly. The recommendations in these reports we see Related to either lack of training or a risk assessment or lack of a procedure or policy, they trend pretty commonly across these, and they're just not broad enough to encompass the human narrative side of this. So, for example, you know, we talk about stress and operational stress. I think a lot of times. They're going to fall back to what they would consider an environmental factor. Was it cold that day with their frozen hydrants? But instead, how about internal stressors to the member that operated that day? Is that being considered? Or the effects of memory. That's another one. And then even broader around an incident commander trying to make decisions where he doesn't have all the information. You know, what's the uncertainty uh, around you know, him trying to make decisions at that fire. So decision making is a big thing, and it's just not that black or white. And, and with the reports, and Jason, we'll get into this later when we talk about you know, how do we view the report from starting at the end or do we start prior to the event? And that's really key in that we don't want to silo the event through a telescope or a single lens where there could be multiple factors from a cultural perspective related to that department that's ongoing, uh, maybe a compliance issue that's been chronic. So there's bigger things that go to this narrative that we're trying to broaden than just around some of the traditional factors uh, that we hear. So situational awareness, that's something that we talk about and we see mentioned a lot in these reports in the context around situational awareness is typically tied to countering tunnel vision well we know when we talk about stress there's multiple factors or impacts on a member more than just tunnel vision so it's good that they're you know starting that conversation but it's it's just not going deep enough and getting to where we need to go and self-awareness of the member I think that's another big part of it so the situational awareness to the situation, but, but what's the member's self-awareness to themselves in terms of the duration of them working, their gear, their position, how long, they, how long they've been working, what position in a basement, above grade, above the fire, et cetera. So a lot of these little things really do matter. And when we fall back to these recommendations that we see at the end of the report, they don't go to a narrative relating to the human aspect, but typically it falls to a technology, meaning if we provided the member more information or another piece of technology, it could have made the difference. And, and the work that the team's doing, LUF is seeing that that's counterintuitive.
1: Jimmy, how about from your perspective? You know, you, you come through a couple of these. Is there anything you want to go on the record and say that you, you thought made the, the methodology as a follow-up, you thought made it... Uh different, unique, important?
0: Well, for me, it completely changed the way I looked at this process. And you know, during my career, we've had an extraordinary number of brave souls who gave their lives. The glaring absence of the human factor, which we'll talk about more at length, that to me really drove it home. When you compare the things that we're learning and understanding now you realize that there is a significant gap in what is being presented and for understanding.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what we try to do. We try to objectively address that gap uh, that we've really come to recognize and certainly appreciate even more in recent years. But we try tried to address that gap in terms of the methodology, like the framework that each guy relied upon. You know, if you look at those reports, there's a tremendous amount of attention given to building behavior or fire behavior, Certainly even more so in, in recent years. and it, intuitively, our sense was there wasn't much attention given to the human factor, which arguably is the principal element. And then I, I think that we, we really tried to be objective in designing a, a methodology inclusive of an analysis worksheet and subsequent matrix that would allow us to emot- or, uh, objectively determine to the extent to which attention was given to
0: the human factor. Gents, why is this endeavor important? Why does it matter? Without question, these line of duty death
1: reports are historically and consistently at the cornerstone of our na- nation's effort to learn from firefighter fatalities and to strive to prevent similar outcomes in, in the future. And I think it's, it's fair to say that these, these reports are a significant mechanism for learning, perhaps the most influential catalyst for for change that exists in the American fire service. There's a thought exercise that I commonly subject folks to when traveling and, and speaking about leadership, or perhaps more specifically, human performance at, at fires and emergencies. And what I'll ask folks to do is, you know, once we spend a little time talking about cognition and talk about mental representations and slides and mental models, whether, whether ex- experiential or institutional, right, and talk about training and, and, and learning and efforts to, to really build a robust slide deck, I will commonly ask folks to identify a fire that they did not respond to or operate at, but where members were sub- subjected to uh, heightened amounts of operational stress in their performance of their duties, somebody was tragically killed or perhaps several members were killed. And In an effort to learn from that tragic event, the American Fire Service modified either minimally or, or, or considerably its behavior in the forms of tactics, techniques, and procedures. And despite the fact that individuals in that room weren't at that fire, they are in possession of a slide or a file. From what we call the, the, the red file cabinet, and typically I'll, I'll ask folks to identify a fire. We go around the horn, and and I, I think it speaks to really in some ways speaks to the character of the American Fire Service and how invested we are in our in our history, and our culture. And folks will will rattle through. Uh, you've probably seen these these thought exercises, Jimmy, but folks will rattle through through fires. It's like metaphorically, and it really in some ways validates what folks like. You know, Janet Metcalf have, have taught us about cognition, but folks like instantly metaphorically can just reach right into the file cabinet and talk about to some extent in, intelligently about Watts Street or the Charleston fire or Black Sunday like, or Hackensack, New Jersey, like despite the fact that they they weren't there. And not only does it highlight all that is good in the American fire service in terms of our character, A genuine concern for our fellow brothers and sisters, it really illuminates the file cabinet we're all toting around of these fires that ended uh, tragically. And from that perspective, you know, I'm going to kind of put my human factors hat on here for a second, but from that perspective, it it really illustrates just how uh, heavily weighted our our file cabinets are, you know, our our mental slide trays are, uh, in, in being keenly aware. Of, of these fires where, where members gave gave their lives in service to our, our cities, municipalities, and, and, and even country, which I think is uh, is significant. The question then becomes, given the immense influence that these reports, arguably narratives have, on how we think about what we do at fires and emergencies as it relates to risk profile, tactics, techniques, procedures, philosophies of command, you, you name it, are the narratives accurately depicting what transpired. Because if they're, if they're not, and there's gaps or flaws, then um, something that's certainly well intended, and I would argue beyond noble, becomes problematic from a learning perspective, and one of how we think about what we should be doing at fires and emergencies. Jerry.
2: I echo your sentiments, Jason, regarding there are very few things in terms of documents that go across the fire service that have such an impact, you know, a fatal fire report. And, you know, we're also seeing the trend with these UL studies. I mean, these are probably the two top things that we're seeing that, you know, transverse every fire department, irregardless of a policy, procedure, whatever, all of this hits home. But on a, on a personal note, you know, and, and personally to what happened to us here in Baltimore, you know, I always think back to the, to the moral imperative. It's the morally the right thing to do, and it's what's owed to those people that gave everything. It's the least that we can do to try to share their story, but also for those that were there, that survived that day and that, that move on and continue with their career, uh, I think it's just vitally important in terms of that. You know, I think about the why I, I had the opportunity to be around an FDI member recently. And, and he was uh, he's a senior man. and He teaches the generation now today of firefighters where we're, we're just in a time and place where the why is so critical. It's just it just can't be a declarative statement anymore of you don't do this. You don't do that. Or you do it this way. We have to dive down deeper uh, to generate, you know, a student and and to create a learning and a desire, you know, to have a better understanding, particularly around decision making, and then how when it comes into stress, and they both are, you know, overlapping with each other. So the why to me is is super critical. And again, going back to that personal note, you know, for our, our loved ones and, and those that we lost this to me is there's no better way to make sure they're not forgotten to, to carry on and to just make our people better. I mean, that, that's really for me at the end of the day, we can be better. We can do better. And this is one way we can do that. Yeah. Well said, Jay.
0: Let's unpack the team's key human factors, findings and subsequent recommendations. one, the fallibility of human memory is disregarded. Jerry, do you want to take this? Thanks, Chairman. this will be a, a short handoff back to you. But when we talk
2: about memory specific to a line of duty death, the clock begins almost instantly the time that events concluded for those surviving members to now try to put the puzzle back together, right? Taking these pieces and building a timeline. So we're looking at their memory from from an episodic type standpoint, meaning, you know, what does that member remember exactly, basically what they did starting at the time of the alarm till, till the end. And the time sensitive pieces, it doesn't take much for our memory to start to have gaps. And it's critical that we get to these members, you know, in a reasonable amount of time to start getting recall, uh, sooner the better. And the accuracy piece only comes into play where as more time goes along, the accuracy can be chipped away. But also the way the reports are today, taking someone's story, there is a corroboration now too where we need to try to overlay some facts, meaning the way the reports are driven They're very much using a data log or a a radio log timestamp type feature to overlap those events. And as you're going to elaborate here in a second, Jim, with your study with Columbia University, when memory is under duress, extreme duress, operational stress, particularly at a mayday where a member may know a member that's trapped, things just get heightened to a level where that memory, you know, can be subject uh, to question, you know, in at certain, in certain stages.
0: So Jerry, in New York, we began a project with Dr. Janet Metcalf. It was our first foray into the understanding of human performance under stress, where we took the recall data from real firefighters in real situations of, of real consequence. And the, the paper was extraordinary because of the impacts we did not expect to see this and it was it was telling and it was the first foray into the academic science and it was beyond instructive when we think of ourselves you know do we have a stressful profession the bottom line is we have in the american fire service we have little to no idea just how stressful this profession really is jimmy i would add and we have a far greater appreciation an
1: academically substantiated or validated supported probably understanding of of memory in large part because of our uh, partnership with columbia but we both know of of individuals who operated at a line of duty fire or a line of duty fire sometimes in excess of 10 to 15 years where they wake up several years later one one yeah. day after a, a good night's sleep and their their recollection changes you know, my question has always been, does the report get amended? You know, perhaps in recent years, because of the proliferation of video and certainly fireground audio, which are two tremendous tools in, in terms of being able to make sense of what happened at a, at a fire, whether the outcome is favorable or, or whether it's truly catastrophic. You know, that I think in some ways is a tremendous tool for the investigators. But let's face it, a large part of the uh, narrative is predicated on human recollection which the margin of error is so extraordinary. It kind of begs the question, should there be a a margin of error Mm -hmm. assigned to each of these reports? Given what we know, one about extraordinary amount of influence that they have on thinking, but a lot of these reports historically have been viewed as gospel. And and I would argue in light of what we're learning about human factors, most notably memory, I think it uh, requires us to think a little bit differently about the margin of, of error uh, for each of these reports.
2: And, and to piggyback that, Jason, I think sh- it should also caution us in terms of you know, what we're writing, to what level of detail you know, what we think happened. Because we don't want to create a conflict with what other members could remember, particularly if they were doing an action and another member thinking of a different action. So there's some justification there to just be you know, responsible
0: to everyone that was involved, living and past. I would add one more piece to this. We've had the opportunity to meet people. And I'll give an example. We we had an event in Maryland last year, and we had a member who was involved in the Baltimore tragedy, intimately involved. Mm -hmm. And he sat through the class, and we spoke about memory, and it brought a measure of comfort to him. And this is something we never, ever anticipated. When you're in an event like this and you have gaps in your memory and things are not in sequence, sometimes you, you can see the pain on them. It's not that you're deficient. It's not that you let down your buddy. It's that you were significantly impacted by operational stress. And it may take you and your brain quite a while to put this back together. It helps them to understand how human they really are. And that human element you know, are people, again, they do the extraordinary every day, but at their core, they're human beings. Gents, finding number two, the impacts of operational stress on human performance are largely missing from NIOSH analysis. Jerry. So I
2: remember hearing Jason uh, give a talk regarding Stress and operational stress, specifically. And he would ask a question about what members, when that uh, alarm sounds, who are the first people that are under the most stress? Because it's obvious everyone getting on the truck responding is going to be under some level of stress. There's no doubt. But he was highlighting the incident commander and the, the driver. If you think about the responsibility of that commander, Thinking about what he's gonna be arriving to, what he has to take command of, how he's going to organize it. And the same for the driver. You know, those those two individuals, when I think about operational stress, right out of the gate are, are two people that are under tremendous stress, you know, out of the collective group. And I recently had a chief at work come up to me and He kind of has put it one plus one equals two of why does he pace around so much when he gets out of the car, when he arrives at a fire and, you know, thinking about the operational stress, it's all being pent up inside of him and by him walking back and forth, he's trying to navigate physically, but really it's the emotional arousal of what he just pulled up on. And and how does he deal with that? You know, where does that go? Does he keep it inside his body? Is there something he can use to help himself to try to control himself? Because the operational stress is not strictly like Jason said earlier, the fire behavior, the building, the environmental, those external, it's really a much more internal stressor to our members that they have to combat. And, and this is, where we want to dive much deeper into the emotional arousal, that excitability, you know, what is that person doing when they get off and start their task, you know, to regulate themselves. So they're trying to keep themselves not getting tunnel vision, you know, so they can listen to the radio and stay aware to what's going on. So we go back to that self-awareness, something we hear a lot from Dr. Fader. And so one more component that I want to add that's very unique to a firefighter in operational stress is the fact that he works predominantly in the zero visibility environment and what that impact is on that member, on every realm from the memory piece down. And then finally, the stress level, when a mayday or a firefighter in distress is given, you know, I don't really care how well seasoned you are how good you think you are psychologically um, you're going to be rocked. I mean, there's going to be a shock an immediate shock. That's going to start driving that heart rate up. It's emotional. And when you think about God forbid, that's someone from your company, someone, you know, it's, it's inordinate. These are all things we have to navigate and is a, is a big void or gap right now in the reports of where does stress impact us on our decision-making and the actions, you know, that we're doing collectively, individually, uh, and so forth.
0: And Jerry, if I can take it from there, you talked about the, the two most stressed individuals. In the spring of 2017, we've been wearing a WHOOP, which is the Rolls-Royce of biometric devices. So we have data from all these positions. It's one thing to say we, but we think these people are stressed. We have their data but we have the largest uh, data set that exists in the American fire service of real fires, even fires that went tragic. We have that as well, and it's extraordinary to the extent that people are pinned to the backside of the curve. And the second piece you mentioned about you know, the spatial element and not losing your, your you know, not being able to see. As human beings, our primary data input is our vision. We're one of the few high-speed professions that operate in the dark. Right. And the question that we ask, and our second project deals with this now, is what happens? How does the brain interpret the loss of its primary data input, which is visual? And secondary, what happens when you're wearing all of this gear the way you're instructed? What other sensory inputs are being provided to the brain in a stress situation? We put people in, in search situations where they're blacked out and test them. And it's extraordinary. That pro- that paper is about to be executed now with Dr. Andy Morgan. Again, this is the first time people are looking this and quantifying this, all in the hopes of better understanding how we perform, and more importantly, what was happening in the moments when these tragic fires occurred. Okay, moving on to finding number three. Analysis begins with the receipt of the alarm. Jason? Sure,
1: so the team's findings were that the an overwhelming majority of the NIOSH nice line-of-duty reports revealed that the starting point for their analysis largely began at the receipt of the alarm. You know, there, there's a mantra in the, in the fire service, size-up starts at the receipt of the alarm. And perhaps from a tactical perspective, that's accurate, particularly if you're coming off another box, right? You're transitioning to the next run, the next box, and your, uh, your, your size-up process starts again. From a human factors perspective, I think this is a shortfall in the reporting and and certainly in the analysis. The the more that we learn about the brain, I I guess, from somewhat of a kind of a neurological perspective, your experience carry a great amount of weight in how you think about your operational environment. I mean, right, this is why training is so important, right? Because in, in many ways, we're trying to replicate or provide folks with mental models Particularly in instances where they have no real-world experiential models, but kind of look at this from the perspective of uh, of an athlete and a warfighter, as it relates to the deficiency that it is or the potential uh, ramifications of of starting the analysis at the receipt of the alarm. Today is uh, Monday, April third. San Diego State Aztecs are going to go up against Coach Dan Hurley's UConn Huskies tonight and play for the national championship in, in basketball. Is a huge fan. Of the Hurley family, I'm I'm certainly hopeful that Dan Hurley and the and the Huskies win win tonight. But let's just assume for a moment that they that they do. There are going to be several books that are going to be written about their season. A number of different folks that are going to come in and try to unpack the the secrets to their success in the the, the season, the college basketball season that was 2022 into 2023. Would anyone write about their their season and and try to make sense of it, starting with uh, the uh, postseason tournament? No, would anyone start when they arrived at the Final Four? No, folks would probably go back to the early, early weeks of practice. You know, what were the conditions that that the coach set? What was uh, morale throughout the season? What were some of the setbacks they had? What were some of the wins that they had early on? What were some of the losses that they had early on that were kind of instrumental in uh, them developing cohesion as a team? And, you know, it would be unrealistic for the investigators who – we Can't say it enough how challenging it is to make sense of these types of, of events. It would be, in many ways, you know, impractical for them to identify everything that could be relevant. But I think a big piece of the picture is, is missing if the analysis of events starts at the receipt of the alarm, you know, particularly, you know, as from the perspective of practitioners. And I would assume that both you gents would agree if we're successful, largely successful foot fire and emergency operations, it's generally attributed to the fact that we spent an amount of time preparing prior to the receipt of that alarm. I think it's that the reports are particularly thin as it relates to helping us to understand what was at play in terms of morale, cohesion, collective mindset, risk tolerance that would have influenced decisions and actions and performance at a particular fire. To some extent, I guess it's helpful to see all of the training courses that they, they completed, but not nearly as, as enlightening as it would be to gain a, a, a sense of what was at play in terms of morale, cohesion, and um, collective mindset. I'll also invoke Boyd for a moment. You know, and I would assume obviously many folks in, our, in the OUF network are familiar with, with Boyd and the ODA loop. Boyd was adamant that the most important phase of the ODA loop was not the first O, oh, but the second, the orientation. And a lot of times, kind of in a, in a fire service context, orientation is making sense of your of your environment at a particular fire. Boy would argue no, it was far more involved than in, than that. You know, dating back to experiences many years prior, your mentors those were instrumental in your development. Prior experiences, good, bad, and and ugly. That orientation uh, phase was the most critical in, in terms of generating favorable uh, favorable tempo in an operational in, in environment. Of, of consequence. I think that the uh, the starting point largely being the receipt of the alarm or at pr- perhaps at, at most being the start of that particular tour or shift where those members came on duty. I think there's some, some significant color that's uh, missing that would have been incredibly important from a human factors perspective.
0: Jumping to finding number four. Performance narratives and causality failed to distinguish between Inexperience, insufficient training, or uniquely complex predicament? Jason? Yeah, I think this particular finding builds
1: off the previous finding, where the analysis starts with the receipt of the alarm, or perhaps the start of that particular tour or shift. And I had a conversation with a gentleman a few years ago. He works for a hedge fund. I met, I met him through, through Fader which instantly means that he was an interesting individual and hyper, hyper competitive. Yeah. We're out one day having lunch, very, very intelligent individual, very cerebral and extraordinarily analytical. This particular gentleman had a PhD in mathematics or econ from UVA, like, you know, intellectual heavyweight. So we're out of lunch and he's, he's probing me with questions about the FDNY and he, he's a New York city resident. And he said, let me, let me ask you a question. He said, my understanding as a civilian is that civilians, like loosely, there's one or two firefighters each year in the city of New York, New York who are killed in the line of duty. So I said, um, yeah, g- generally. I mean, there there will be years where we'll have several, and there'll be sometimes we'll have a run where we'll go a couple of years without any operational line of duty deaths. He said, let me let me ask you this: if we were to break down the, the line of duty deaths categorically, three separate categories. The first being an instance where the firefighters were proficient, competent prepared they were just overmatched by this particular fire the next category being an instance where folks weren't prepared or weren't as competent or weren't as well trained for this particular scenario as they probably could have been or should have been and he said category number three just random luck or or chance he said how would you break down the, the firefighter fatalities and I stopped for a moment, I kind of chuckled, I said, that's perhaps one of the most profound questions I've ever heard as it, as it relates to outcomes in the FDMY and more broadly, the, the, the fire service. In many ways, it was like, I said, I've never heard anyone frame outcomes through an analytical lens categorically in the, in the way that you did. I said, my gut would say they're scattered. Some are instances where guys very well, very seasoned, very well, very much prepared, certainly competent, just uh, found themselves overmatched. I think there's probably instances where, where guys and gals were, were not prepared to the extent that they should have been and came in at a competitive disadvantage. And I think there's instances, uh, I, I could think of a couple, where um, the outcome was tragically a, a, a matter of mere luck or, or chance. And that conversation struck with me then, and it, it really continues to, to resonate with me because I think that the rationale or the presumption in the American Fire Service for many years has been, if we go to a fire and somebody was killed in the line of duty, it, it's because we were perhaps deployed or employed tactics, techniques, and procedures that were inappropriate for, for that particular scenario or that particular environment. In the same vein or in the same way, I think oftentimes if we have a fire where we largely enjoy success because the outcome was favorable, we save some, some civilians lives, the particular fire, uh, fire gains notoriety in the, the news locally, regionally, nationally, I think we walk away with the presumption institutionally that eh, those, are, those are model tactics, techniques, procedures. And I think try, trying to uh, put on a, my, my inner Sandy Alderson here for, for a moment, who was instrumental in getting professional baseball to think more critically and certainly analytically, I think that those two presumptions are, are really problematic for the fire service. But oftentimes the narrative is exclusively and overwhelmingly predicated on, predicated on the outcome. And equally problematic is the fact that the only fires in the American fire service that received thorough scrutiny and analysis are those that end in, in death which from a statistical perspective, a probabilistic perspective, and you know, I, I kind of recognize in this moment, I'm kind of divorcing myself from the emotion that's involved and connected to these fires, but, but I think professionally we have to sometimes and look at this objectively, the, the pattern and trends that we see are probably skewed considerably. You know, Jimmy, I, I don't have ne- nearly as many years on the job as, as you do, but you know, of course my career certainly, there's been a number of line of duty fires. You know, several of them really hit close to home in terms of personal friends and, and, and colleagues. And, you know, if you're looking at this subjectively and you think that the New York City Fire Department responds to this, somewhere in the ballpark of 2,000 working structural fires a year, you know, well over 1,000 fires of consequence a, a year, where there's likely a civilian life hazard and members are truly, truly exposing themselves to, to several levels of physical risk in the performance of their duties. And you think that we operate at you know, well north of 1,000 fires a year, and the only impetus, the only trigger line for a thorough analysis of what transpired at that fire is somebody unfortunately being killed. You can't help but question, like, how do we arrive at any definitive narrative around patterns or, or trends? You know, and I think back to, there's a couple of fires that we as a team, line of duty death uh, reports that we reviewed, where these particular fires transpired outside the city of New York. One in particular comes to mind. And uh, below grade fires, which historically can be pretty, uh, pretty tough, the report doesn't offer any insight into how many fires that these these gentlemen might have operated at in those types of occupancies below grade. That data point is really significant from not only from a human factors perspective. You know, when thinking about how familiar was their operational environment to them, perhaps then you can start to kind of tease out whether inexperience was a prevailing force whether perhaps overconfidence and, and, and complacency and ensued, and we're all guilty of, of that on occasion, because that's, that's part of being human, or perhaps most significantly, was this particular event uniquely com- complex or was it different? We, we don't know. And institutionally, we, we come from, away from every, every single one of these events with a narrative that says, these guys didn't perform appropriately, tactically, technically, and, and procedurally and catastrophe ensued. And I, I would even argue that the reports don't even make an important distinction between was this a, was this a training failure or was this a performance failure? Now, you, you kind of have to tread lightly, but once we come to accept the fact that we're all, we're all one fire away from performing suboptimally because of the uh, inordinate physiological levels of, of of stress that we're being being subjected to it's not an indictment i, I don't think it's an indictment in any way to to, to to suggest that performance was negatively impacted because of the levels of stress that these individuals were, were subjected to in fact in many ways i i think it it offers uh, a compelling case that in some ways provides provides comfort knowing that these ordinary people were doing truly extraordinary uh Things you know. In many ways, my sense is that the methodology they use seeks to establish cause and effect. I don't know how you could truly establish definitively a, a work to establish any sort of meaningful cause and a, cause and effect if you aren't able to unpack whether this was an inexperienced member versus a, a very seasoned member, or perhaps instances where this
0: was just a uniquely different event environmentally. What do you think, Jim? Before being part of LUF, we didn't think like this this has been a broadening experience to think more differently about these events. And now that we're gaining a a more broad perspective, we'll come to to better understand what this endeavor is about and what this project specifically aims to do.
1: Yeah, and I think you you make an important point, Jim. I think we have to be really clear that we have more questions than answers, easily. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface. And I say that with, you know, in an effort to, to kind of convey the, the team's humility. But I think much of the fire service is left to believe that we know why firefighters die. And I would argue, it sounds like a contrarian here, but I, I would argue that at this point in time, collectively at best in the American fire service, I would include the FDNY, that we know how firefighters die. But we don't know why they die. You know, sometimes in the course of travel, folks will invoke the NIOSH five. They'll speak to the the fact that there's five factors that are commonly present at fires that ended in, in death or serious injury to, to members: inadequate risk a, assessment, a breakdown in communications, a, a breakdown in incident command at at some point, a lack of accountability to the extent that that the incident commanders. Or company officers weren't weren't fully aware of members were were operating, and a, a deviation from standard operating procedures and and guidelines. And I'm not going to suggest that those aren't present in all the line of duty fires, uh, NIOSH line of duty reports that we have reviewed. But you know where else where those factors are overwhelmingly present? Pretty much every every really good fire, really good fire we've ever operated at. And I I think this might sound a little uh odd but i think going forward every time the american fire service department goes on record and, and touts their performance at a at a really really complex ass kicking challenging fire as an overwhelming win the same level of scrutiny and analysis needs applied to that to that fire and i think i could be wrong here but my my hypothesis is that or our team's hypothesis is that if you if you work left to right as opposed to right to left, and you don't know how the story ends. Even those mo- some of the most seasoned, yeah. intuitive leaders that we have in the American Fire Service would would be challenged to predict the Vegas odds which fire ends favorably, and which fire ends in catastrophic death. I, I don't think we can really define what equated to to death and serious injury in, until we start to kind of tease out or identify the extent to which the the same factors, down in communications, uh, lack of accountability at some point, deviation from, from SOP, like we're, we're quick to attribute and establish causality. You know, that's my sense that NIOSH is quick to establish causality as it relates to those factors. But I mean, Jimmy, you've been around, you know, many more years than me, but I think back to some really good fires where I've been to where ordinary guys did extraordinary things under, under pressure. And we reap the benefits of folks deviating. And there was a breakdown in communication because the auditory exclusion is pervasive under those levels of stress. And no one, fortunately, the outcome was favorable. Civilians' lives were saved. No one was, was, was seriously injured or critically injured or, or, or killed. But like, we, we wouldn't walk away from that event and, and, and hang our hat on the fact that like, hey, guys won medals, civilians lived to tell the tale, despite great odds. And um, be- because of the, the, the heroism of our members and we attribute our success under pressure to the fact that guys flagrantly uh, violated SOPs or that there was a breakdown in communication. So I think we have to be really, really then cautious to hang our hat on, on the causality that says, well, this is why this is why this fire, you know. But once again, it goes back to more, more questions than answers at this point. But I really think that the starting point going forward has to be that every every good fire of consequence, whether it ends arguably in a in a win for the fire department in terms of how we message the public, or whether it ends in in in, in the worst of the fashions where we lose a, a brother sister firefighter, we got to apply the same the same level of na- analysis and, and scrutiny. Objectively, I, I I try to think about like uh, somebody like an Alderson or this gentleman with the with the PhD. From UVA, I think they would quickly question: how, how do you know what you do poorly, or what equates to loss if you aren't able uh, exerting the same effort? Trying to make sense of what equates to arguably wins, wins or victories. Well
0: said, Chance, Let's move on to um, finding number five. Outcome bias trivializes fireground uncertainty and dramatically alters the risk profile narrative. Jason, you want to take this? Yeah, sure. In many ways, our, our finding that
1: the contended outcome bias trivialized fireground uncertainty and alters the risk profile narrative. In many ways, builds off the the discrepancy or or results that this particular discrepancy results from the fact you know as, as an industry only thoroughly scrutinizing those fires that end in in, in tragedy and in death. And I think. We talked earlier about how we're cognitively hardwired to think about risk at fires and, and emergencies. If somebody walks into a room in the American Fire Service and they communicate to the group that they're gonna they're gonna do a case study, instantly we would be willing to wager that case study that they're gonna the fire they're gonna revisit ends in tragedy. In tragedy, um, unless this individual or a few individuals have gone to great lengths to build a case study that ends in you know, arguably uh, glory, right? Or certainly in an outcome that, that, that was favorable to the extent that no one was seriously injured or, or killed. So you know, even the word case study is overwhelmingly correlated to tragedy. And the moment, uh, the moment you walk into a training room or the Files kitchen, somebody starts to talk about a line of, line of duty death, we're, we're all conditioned and institutionally hardwired to reach into, the, the, you know, I said the PhD from, from UVA had three categorical buckets, right? The mere chance and, and luck, the one where guys and gals were just overmatched, or the one that where folks were uh, largely un, unprepared or poorly trained for the moment that was. I think overwhelmingly we're, we're institutionalized to reach into the, into the categorical bucket that says, hey, the, these guys and gals were unprepared for the moment that was. Or the chief, you know, displayed a, a, a willingness to accept a necessary level of, of risk g- given the results or that the tactics, techniques, or procedures were, were just inappropriately. And I think cognitively, we're all guilty of, of like instantly indicting individuals that were there. And you got to remember where our starting point is. Our starting point is we know how the story ends. These are guys and gals that got up and went to work that day you know, in the back of their mind, we're all kind of aware of the fact that we can go to work and get on a rig for the last time. But most of us are not riding around with, with that at the, the forefront of our thinking because that would just be a lot of things. It would be weird, but it would also be entirely counter counterproductive. I would argue from a, from an analytical perspective, you're already at a, at a huge advantage knowing how this, the story ends. Far greater than anybody that responded to that particular fire emergency, because if the story, if they knew ultimately how the story ends, guess what they would have done. To some extent, they would have, they would have course corrected, and I think this becomes particularly problematic because in every instance where a firefighter is killed, the record reads that from a risk reward pr- uh, perspective, the incident commander or the company officer or this particular firefighter erred on the side of favoring the risk over the reward because the reward was overwhelmingly punitive. You know, one of the things that's, I think, kind of problematic about this, the rationale that ensues is, one is that the counterfactuals, like the things that didn't happen and could have happened or didn't happen, and in some folks' minds should have happened, are always assumed to be favorable. Like, have you ever read a line of duty r- report that says, well, one member was killed, but it's it's nothing shy of extraordinary and miraculous that more members weren't killed. No. Do we know of fires that probably meet that criteria? Sure. You know, but the narrative is always one of one of if this member went up above without the protection of a line and he had come down prior, that he would have enjoyed an overwhelmingly favorable outcome. Perhaps we don't know that with with, with certainty. That presumptive narrative you know, from a kind of an analytical objective perspective is, is, is really problematic. And perhaps the the most glaring deficiency of all is the fact that uncertainty, it's not even in, in the lexicon of vocabulary that that's connected to these, these reports. How many of us, how many times, right. And those, those in, in our, in our uh, larger network have been to fires where you'll pull up and it could be just a, Two-story, 20 by 40 private dwelling, and on arrival, you have no idea where it is, and it's banked down the street. Just working arduously to identify where the main body of fire is, is, is nothing shy of, of challenging. God forbid, at that particular fire, a member loses his his life. Everyone who's, who participates in the investigation and the analysis instantly or in many instances has a piece of information, critical piece of information that no one at that particular fire did. And the brain hates uncertainty, right? We know that because folks like Metcalf and Morgan and Huberman and Klein and Kahneman, they've been drilling this into our understanding of performance and factors for years now. And we're finally starting to really get it. And because the brain hates uncertainty, in any instance where we can, we, we try to compensate whether it's uh, accurate or not. We try to fill those those gaps and, and, and voids. And I think, you know, we look at these fires and you read these reports and we're all guilty of it. You sit down, you read it. It's a very it's a, it's a very sterile, sterilized version of, of, of what transpired. And what I mean by sterilized isn't that it's, it's lacking detail, but uh, it lacks emotion. Like you read these reports, and you are like I kind of get it. Like those guys go left and you're, you're already intuitively like, all right, they're starting to go above. If I'm in, I'm there, maybe I'm going to slow down. Right. So you're, you're already kind of hedging, hedging against because you're, you're equipped with the fact that you know where this intuitively, you know, how this ends, you're already a competitive advantage. That bias right? that we're all highly susceptible to kind of colors in, and shades, much
2: of the, uh, much of the narrative. So Jason, you talked about, having all the information at the end versus, you know, you trying to put yourself in the shoes of those members arriving and and having that very little limited, but also time compressed uh, element, right? So, you know, you, you have to try to put yourself back to where they are with the gun to the head of what you, you know, at the pace and what they're trying to overcome and, and that's ultimately where the narrative becomes, you know, human and the empathy and the compassion for all the players and, and for everything that happened. And yes, there are mistakes, but we have to put, some, put a lens around that that's humanizing what that person was trying to deal with, what they were trying to figure out at that time and the, the sterile part. You know, I echo that in that it, it's it's very procedural and doctoral and like matter of a fact. And it doesn't highlight, you know, some of the things like you mentioned. And, and you're right. The uncertainty piece that goes back to the slide decks, right, are craving to try to get as many slide decks to prepare us for that moment for that day to, to give you something to try to recognize to say okay we can try this or do this but go back to your other point about luck and chance there is no guarantee you know and that's just hard to accept and that's hard for us to not create a data point around something where you know we're left with the question and it's not a definitive answer but we have to we have to be okay with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, you raised a couple of, of really uh, important points there. But I think one involving uncertainty and, and two being the, the metaphor uh, of the, the gun to the head. For, first, you, the point you made regarding uncertainty, um, because the reports are stripped of uncertainty or r- uncertainty and, and its impact on decision makers and, and guys and gals operating these fires because it's marginalized or, or diminished you, you wind up, like I said, your starting point reading this report, one, you ultimately know is how this story ends. But two is because the, the uncertainty is marginalized, you're left with a false sense of confidence in predicting how, how events are gonna uh, transpire at this particular fire. For, for years, I've, hold this, I've heard this mantra, we've all heard it. You know. In, in many ways, what's predictable is, as preventable and let's face it, I, I'll, I'll try to keep my words uh, measured here, but, but there are folks that, that travel the country and do case studies on fires that they weren't at and in departments that they haven't served. And it's largely like, hey, I know how the story ends. I've read the report. I talked to a few guys and I'm gonna take you on this, on this journey and we're gonna change the, the, the course of, of events tactically or procedurally or perhaps, perhaps with a, a, a different model of of command and control. And I, I think one is it's it's certainly at best questionable for, from an ethics perspective. And I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to tread lightly there. But from a kind of from an analytical, objective, whatever academic perspective, it's really problematic. And it does a real it does a real disservice to those guys and gals that were that were there. That things that we take for granted now were were not things that they that they knew in, in that moment at best they were they were making uh, educated educated guesses with limited imperfect imperfect and incomplete information and perhaps most importantly the image of the gun to the head as dramatic as that sounds there's some merit to that because we know now when you look at the data sets where these guys and gals were on on the performance curve at these types of fires without question key regions of their brain were offline and the very regions of the brain that were offline were the, re, uh, the regions that allow us to, to make higher level decisions in very methodical and deliberate fashion. These folks were making very, very difficult decisions, critical decisions that involve life and, and property with an increasingly primitive version of the human brain. You know, just the fact that you're sitting in a room reading the report, trying to make sense of this. You're enjoying a a luxury physiologically, biologically, and cognitively that they they didn't enjoy. I I would add like put the gun to the head, prefrontal cortex goes offline. All right, that's not enough uh, A hot blow dryer to the neck. Now, you know, play the subject matter expert that that can rewrite history. I'm not suggesting, I just want to be clear. I'm not suggesting that we don't learn from these fires. And I'm not suggesting that we don't, rigorously scrutinize the, these fires. I, I think that institutionally we're, we're at risk and you, you see it like a lot of the, the models that the American fire service has created in recent years to, to perhaps minimize risk while increasing the likelihood that we're gonna, we're gonna enjoy, the, enjoy the rewards. That a lot of these decision-making models which I'm not gonna mention any of them by name but they require a level of understanding and of environmental situational understanding that the guy standing in front of the building or the chief down the block in his command car, the guy who's on the floor floor above or the guy's looking for the main body of fire, they didn't enjoy. so i I think uh, there's definitely some some glaring deficiencies and discrepancies as it relates to the 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 subsequent risk profile narrative and the fact that uncertainty is you really struggle to even find it in, in these, uh, these reports. And then when you sit down and have, you know, meaningful conversations with the guys and gals that were at these types of fires, you, you, you quickly gain an appreci- appreciation of, for the extent to which uh, uncertainty was impacting them.
0: Well, well Jay- said, gentlemen, no, I think, uh, I think you nailed that. I don't think there's any more to add to that. That was well done. Gents, as we wrap it up the road ahead for the LUF team, on this front, Jason? Yeah, we, we
1: have a, a lot more to do. There's a few things that we think we know. There's far more things that we, we know that we don't know. And then there's the element of what we don't know yet that we that we don't know. It's a unique and particularly exciting time in the American fire service. Um, you know, I say it all the time, like our our generation is we're not gonna go to the same number of fires that our fathers and grandfathers went to. but I think our gift, our collective gift to the American Fire Service is that we're going to leave the American Fire Service with uh, a, a greatly enhanced understanding of human performance un, under stress. And if I think about the things that we've been able to do as a team, certainly within the FDNY the last few years, nationally, it's an exciting time. And, and I think, look, the, the the process is certainly not without its, without its flaws, but the fact is that uh, – some really good folks have put a lot of time and effort into the, into these reports over the years, and, and given what we're learning and can, what we've learned and are continuing to learn about human performance and human human factors, we we have a, a a significant opportunity to build off of the foundation that they've that they've given us. One of the advantages that we have is the character and the culture within the American Fire Service as it relates to never forgetting those who operated at fires and, and gave their lives in and the performance of their duties is, is truly, truly special. I would argue it, it, it exceeds even that of the military when it comes to truly memorializing the, the lives of American firefighters and fire officers who, who gave their lives. You know, the fact that we have an opportunity as a team, as a network, as a nation to, to continue to improve these, these processes, all in interest of, of, of continuing to get better. You know, an increasing likelihood that at our moments of uh, moments of truth that we're going to perform optimally in an effort to uphold the the, the values of the American Fire Service. is
0: pretty exciting. Well said. Jerry, would you like to add something?
2: Yeah, I echo uh, Jason Sennem as well for, you know, why we're doing this and to. Uh, I like the word that you used earlier too, Jim, just to broaden the conversation. I think that's just so important. And uh, it'll take time, you know, this this isn't gonna happen uh, quickly. And the more as well that we can get on board with this endeavor too, it'll be more beneficial long-term. But definitely grateful uh, for today, grateful to be able to contribute. So thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jason.
0: So. For me, you know, for, for an older fireman, you know, I started the job in blue jeans and you know, to see where we've come, you know, to have the, the, the honor of working with this team and to do the things that we're doing were inconceivable when I was a young fireman and uh, you know, it's a testament to the quality of the people on the team that we're going to contribute to improving this noble profession. And not just to improve the line of duty for fire reports, but to improve the, the capability sets of those who are willing to risk themselves for people they've never met. There is simply no greater cause, no greater purpose. And if we can play a role in that, it is the honor of a lifetime.